Welcome back to the program. We all know that our system of government is broken. Mostly we attribute it to bickering, to bitter partisanship, but also in part, it's the fault of the millions upon millions of pages of rules and regulations that seemingly govern every aspect of our lives. This is true on a local, state, and national level. Many of these rules were well-meaning, put in place to address a problem, right or wrong, or fix an imbalance. The process has gotten out of hand and hardly kept pace with the progress of the world around them. What we have now not only stifles innovation, it increases cost, and really runs counter to some of our most cherished principles and ideas as to what our country is about. We're going to talk about this today with a guest that has been with us before. It is my pleasure to welcome Philip K. Howard back to this program. He's the author of The Death of Common Sense. He's the chairman of Common Good, and it is my pleasure Welcome him here to talk about the rule of nobody. Philip Howard, thanks so much for joining us. Nice to be with you. Great to have you here. When we talk about all of these rules and regulations, talk first about the scope of this, because I think we forget sometimes how big a a situation we're talking about. Literally hundreds of millions of words just to federal rules and regulations. Yes, and so uh, federal regulations probably somewhere between 100 and 150 million words of law, and then the, all the state and local regulation is uh, another maybe 2 billion or so words. It's, it's beyond the capacity of any mortal to know these laws. And not only to know them, but it's impossible to comply with them because they're just sort of piled up. And each one may be well-meaning, but nobody actually has the job of making them fit together. So it's filled with inconsistencies and duplicate. You know, there are 82 teacher training programs in the federal government. You know, which one do you, do you apply for? So, you know, it's, just, it's literally a kind of a junk pile. And the result of all of this is not just that some of them are ignored, but that they really become a roadblock sometimes to getting things done. Oh, much worse than that. Uh, it's, it's, it's the basis of, of government paralysis and increasingly uh, economic paralysis. Uh, people, the U.S. now ranks 20th in the world in ease of starting a business. This is the United States of America, 20th in the world in ease of starting a business. The reason is because it takes a dozen, sometimes several dozen permits from different agencies to start a business. Talk a little bit about how we got to this point. Well, I think there are two uh, there are two structural flaws in the way we've set up the legal structure of government. Um, The first is that we don't we treat all law the same as if it were the Ten Commandments, except it's the Ten Million Commandments. But um, but there's laws and there's laws. There's the you know there's the First Amendment. There's the protection against unreasonable searches and seizures in the Constitution. There are laws against theft and fraud and complying with contracts. These are all you know sort of timeless principles, and they can they should last forever. Uh, and then there are what what are more like social management tools, where government is trying to eliminate a harm, so it passed the law, or it's trying to provide uh, social service, like special ed laws, for example, for disabled children. And those are much more like management tools for society. And how they work, you know, whether they should continue to exist or in what form depends on how they work. But we never go back and look at how they work. They just get enacted 
decades ago, and then they set sail towards immortality. Well, every one of them has unintended consequences. Special ed, for example, now consumes over 25% of the total K-12 budget in America. Uh, there's almost no money for gifted children or early education. Is that the right balance? Nobody's even asking the question. So that's one problem. The second problem is, is that we have this idea that law should tell people how to do things correctly. That's really not what a free society is about. That's central planning. If you have, uh, it's one thing to say, for example, say for nursing home regulation. I, and I'm not an anti-regulator. I, mean, I believe that government oversight is more needed in a crowded society where you putting your loved ones in the care of people you don't know. So you want some government oversight there. But um, it's one thing to have principles to say you've got to have a home-like setting or respect the dignity uh, of the residents, have nutritious meals. All those things are perfectly comprehensible. But that isn't how they regulate nursing homes. They have a thousand rules that say food shall be stored not less than 15 centimeters above the floor. Or there should be 0.09 <laughs> recreational workers. You know, it just goes on forever. Eggs shall be cooked. There's a rule that says that. The, um, you know, many of them are completely obvious or self-evident. But if you've got thousands of rules, then what happens is the people in the nursing home spend their whole day complying with the rules instead of making life nice for the residents. It's completely counterproductive, or 80% counterproductive. Has there ever been a conversation anywhere about the reality that, as you say, we never go back and look not only at the unintended consequences, but even the fact that some of these laws are irrelevant to the times in which we live, that it's just layer upon layer piled on each other. They never sunset, and we never even have the opportunity inherent in the laws themselves to go back and look at how they're working or not working. Uh, no, there hasn't really been a, uh, any coherent conversation, public conversation. You know, everybody argues about public policy, about what our goals should be, and nobody's really talking about how do we implement our goals. And you can't implement goals when people are crushed by you know, billions of words of law. You can't get anything done. The President of the United States doesn't have authority to approve rebuilding a decrepit bridge. It takes close to a decade to get approval. That's just absurd. I mean, why do we elect people if not to make, in this case, obvious choices to rebuild infrastructure? So, you know, we could hire 2 million Americans if the president had the authority to approve obvious rebuilding projects. They'd be hired in two years. But to, he can't do it because he doesn't have the authority to do it. To what extent is the legal system and the need for tort reform tied up in all of this? Well, it's very related because um, one, of the, um, one of the drivers of detailed rules is that people, everyone's scared they're going to get sued, including government. And so they say, well, if there's a rule for it, then we can say we followed the rule. But that's a really lousy reason to create a system of central planning. You know, and, and you, you get these idiocies where, where now we're training a whole you know, culture of people that, that, that their job is not to do what's right, but to follow the rules. So, for example, a couple of years ago, um, a mother's uh, son had, was depressed. He had gone off his medication. He said he was going to kill himself by just swimming out into the ocean off Alameda in Alameda County. And uh, so she called 911, and sure enough, the 
firemen, police came, and they're standing on the beach. There's some guy treading water 150 yards offshore. Crowds, passers-by came, and they said, why don't you go save this person? And they said, because of budget cuts, we haven't been recertified for land-based rescue. <laughs> so it would be illegal for us to go rescue him. There might be liability. <laughs> they, well, what liability? You know, why don't you be liable to save somebody's life? Uh, but they refused to do it. So finally, a woman passing by dove into the water. She swam out to try to save. Got there too late. She ended up dragging the body back in. And the next day, the fire chief was uh, asked, you know, by the media, he said, "Well, what would you have done if that was a young child that was drowning?" And he said, "I know what I would have done if I was off duty, but if I was on duty, <laughs> I'd have to follow the rule." Wow. Now think about that. I mean. That's I, I can tell you five stories like that from, from the last year where people watch people die because the rule says call 911. There was a story just over the weekend of a veteran who died because no one would take him the 500 feet to the hospital next door because the rule was to call 911. Ah, you know, sort of, well, you know, and so, and that's in part related to this fear of litigation. Everybody thinks, everybody's so paranoid about getting sued that they have to follow the rules. To what extent has this become so inculcated in our culture that even beyond looking at the rules themselves, that we now have a culture that thinks this way, that operates this way, which is even harder to turn around? Um, well, yes and no. I think most Americans know what's right and wrong. We've just been conditioned not to act on it. I think that the bottom line is um, people who who act like idiots, including following the rules, ought to be accountable for that, including, after a warning, getting fired, let's say. <laughs> you know, the fear of losing your job will trump the culture. <laughs> so if you put some leadership in here where people are said or told, your job isn't to follow this rule book, your job is to do what's right, then people will change. So, so I, don't, I don't think the culture's gone yet, but it's, there's certainly warning signs. Certainly within the political culture, there isn't the will to address any of this. No, the political system, uh, change, big change never comes from the political system. I mean, they're all lagging indicators. You know, it's really, you know, every member of Congress should resign. It's, it's really, Washington's really too far gone. This is, these changes will happen because I and others are able to, you know, get together and start a movement to force change, and that combined with a crisis, none of this will happen until we have some serious crisis, I'm afraid. Um, you know, it provides the impetus for change, but you can't just wait for the crisis because often you can get a change that's really terrible. Right. I mean, <laughs> one, of, one of the things you talk about is, for example, the Volcker rule. Whether it's good, bad, or indifferent is not the point. The, the issue that you talk about is how complex it is, and, and that's as a result of crisis. Yes, and so you, you end up with a 980-page rule to regulate proprietary trading for banks. There's so many things wrong with this rule, I can barely begin, but one of them is they only really care about a dozen big banks, you know, who, who engaged in too much, uh, you know, risk-taking with, with their capital, with proprietary trading, as opposed to, you know, lending people money and doing conventional bank business. So they write this rule to, to this rule, this you know, this tome, to deal with it. Well, it should have been about a paragraph. 
and said, she'll not engage in proprietary trading, you know, uh, except, you know, when necessary to, you know, in the furtherance of, you know, client activities or something like that. You just have a general principle. And these, and it only, it should only apply to the big banks. So they're the only ones we care about. They're the only ones that have systemic risk that, you know, can cause the kind of problems that happened in 2007, 2008. So instead it applies to almost everybody. And it, it, with that many pages, it's just creating loopholes. The more words you create, the more loopholes you get. You make it nice and kind of general and vague. And all these big banks are swarming with bank examiners. Like at any given point, J.B. Morgan Chase has 150 bank examiners on premises. <laughs> you know, they can look at the books every month and tell whether they're engaging in trading of sorts that look suspicious. So it's not that hard a problem to solve. You don't need a 980 pages. What is it going to take? And you talk about a movement. You talk about outside government. I mean, the reality is that this problem is so large, addressing the point we made at the beginning in terms of how much regulation there is on the federal level and on the state level and even the local level, the degree to which any of this can be addressed in a meaningful way. Well, first of all, uh, so I have this new book, The Rule of Nobody, and I talk about that. And, um, And basically, it's, uh, it's not whether it can be addressed. It has to be addressed. I mean, the, the system will collapse of its own weight. I just watched a video by Larry Page at Google mm-hmm. basically saying that. He said, there's so much law that it's going to, you know, it's going to collapse of its own weight. And it will. It's just grinding to a halt. We can't rebuild. The infrastructure students have lost, I mean, teachers have lost control of the classroom. Doctors spend over a third of their time doing paperwork. Uh, you know, it's just, it's grinding to a halt. Our government can't do anything, and it costs too much. So, so, so it's going to have to change. And, and, um, but as I said, it will probably be in a time of crisis. One of the places that we see a real profound effect of all of this is in the area of innovation and, and stifling innovation and the difficulty for real creative destruction to come along, things like Airbnb or Uber, We've seen the rules and regulations that are so in place, so enmeshed in these systems that it makes it very difficult for uh, new ways of doing things. Well, that's true. And it's interesting. The technology areas have been, at least initially, immune because they were new, right? But the regulations are keeping up to them, you know, catching up to them. So Uber and Airbnb are both good examples of regulators descending upon them because there are vested interests in the status quo that don't want them to compete, even though they provide fantastic services. So, um, uh, but it isn't just new businesses like that. It's also innovation and creativity, you know, with, you know, with small letters, uh, people in the community deciding to, to build a new park or to have an activity on the weekends or to take the kids on a field trip or, or to let the church have this kind of activity for, for kids or whatever. All these things run into numerous legal hurdles, many of which are completely unnecessary. But, I mean, some teacher in Wyoming was telling me about, you know, she needed to take some kids to the debating finals in Wyoming. And Laramie is 200 miles away from Cody. And 
they were forced to go in a school bus that held 60 people because the rules didn't allow the teacher to drive them, saving money, in her van. You know, I mean, how stupid is that? You know, rumbling along in some uncomfortable, and by the way, unsafe, you know, because those buses are not that safe. School bus. <laughs> it's just idiotic. Yeah, so it's stifling creativity and innovation at every level of society. The other area is the way in which so much of this regulation is misused. California is perhaps a, a really good example in terms of CEQA, and in fact, even the, the most ardent environmentalists have to admit that this has been used over and over again to stop progress, to stop projects and development that people don't want that have nothing to do with environmental issues. Oh, completely. There's a project right now and to raise the road, roadway of the Bayonne Bridge uh, that goes into Newark Harbor to let a new generation of efficient and environmentally clean post-pandemic ships come into the harbor. It's being sued by a, quote, group of environmentalists, but it turns out they are being funded by the Teamsters Union. And the reason the Teamsters are funding them is because they're trying to put pressure on the Port Authority to make it a closed union shop. And so they'll do anything to make life miserable for the people who run the port to try to accomplish that end. And they're using environmental law. It has nothing to do with the environment. The project has zero, only positive environmental impact. They're just raising the roadway of an existing bridge. So this, I tell the story in The Rule of Nobody, uh, the first story, but this, you know, they saved billions of dollars by figuring out how to use the same foundation, same right-of-way of this 80-year-old bridge by just, by just moving the roadway up into its arch to allow the new ships to come in. <laughs> These people are just for a completely ulterior purpose. The Teamsters are trying to use, misusing environmental law. Is it going to take some kind of a legal effort to begin to overturn all of this? Well, I think it takes a lot of different kinds of efforts, but legal is one. Um, one, uh, th there are, you know, there was this recent case in California where someone declared the, 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 the tenure system, a judge declared the tenure system unconstitutional, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's the use of, the courts are kind of a like a judo move to uh, everybody else uses the courts to stop things happening. This is using the courts to force something to happen. Um, uh, I'm the chair of a not-for-profit called Common Good, CommonGood.org, that um, th that does you know comes up with proposals to radically simplify different aspects of government. One of one of the ones that needed most is the civil service system. It's just like a teacher's union. It's you know, it's hide bound, you can't manage anything, it's terrible for the people within it. Um, uh, and uh, and I actually think the federal civil service system is unconstitutional because it's Congress basically putting rules on the president about how he manages executive branch. Well, the president's supposed to be in charge of the executive branch. How do you manage something if you can't hire and fire people? So um, so we're actually thinking about bringing affirmative litigation to declare the civil service system unconstitutional. To what extent has this culture of people not wanting to take responsibility, to what extent is that at the core of some of this? Well, you know, there are lots of reasons why people are reluctant to change the current system. If you think of the current system as a giant bureaucratic blob, 
you know, with entitlements and with laws, with tax deductions and tax breaks for companies, for people, where, you know, so everybody's feeding off it to a certain extent. Now, on balance, it's bad for everybody, it suffocates your freedom, but everybody's also getting something from it. Um, and the other thing about it, which you mentioned, that, that people's attractive, is no one's responsible for the failure. So who's responsible for the budget deficit? Nobody. Who's responsible for the fact that we can't rebuild our infrastructure? Nobody. <laughs> who's responsible for the failure of our schools? Nobody. And so it truly is, as the name of my book implies, the rule of nobody. It's just all the law piled up. And, and Washington, people in Washington love it. They get paid handsome salaries. And they're engaged in this nonstop perpetual tug of war where nothing ever happens and where they're not responsible. <laughs> it's a great life. I mean, so, you know, humans avoid responsibility if they possibly can because we're sort of wired that way. You know, if you put people in a cave with food, they'll stay in the cave. Uh, but that isn't what the culture of America was built on, and it's not what makes life satisfying or rich or or meaningful, and it's it's a terrible thing. Philip K. Howard, book is The Rule of Nobody, just out from W.W. Norton. Philip, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Nice to be with you, Jeff. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.